Good evening, and welcome to Emmaus Way on a very balmy January evening, whatever that means for the world as we know it. My name is Ben. I'm on staff here. We're glad that you're here. And we're gathered tonight um, after being off last week to continue a series on justice. Um, We're excited to be hearing from one of our own, Jim Thomas, about Africa and justice and his experience there and his hopes for continuing that work, perhaps in partnership with our community. Um, And so in keeping with that theme, our call to gather for the evening um, is, is a poem by a Ghana Ghanaian poet. It's from Ghana in uh, East Africa, or sorry, West Africa. Two things to know about this. The weaver bird is a famously colony building bird, often in very, very great, like hundreds of birds to a single tree. And they're sometimes known for destroying the very trees in which they built. The weaver bird. The weaver bird built in our house and laid its eggs on our only tree. We did not want to send it away. We watched the building of the nest and supervised the egg laying. And the weaver returned in the guise of the owner, preaching salvation to us that owned the house. They say it came from the west, where the storms at sea had felled the gulls and the fishers dried their nets by the lantern light. Its sermon is the divination of ourselves, and our new horizon limits at its nest. But we cannot join the prayers and answers of the communicants. We look for new homes every day, for new altars we strive to rebuild, the old shrines defiled by the weaver's excrement. So, something to think about there. And sort of a transition to that, but still in the theme of justice. Um, Our community song for this justice series has been this Open Our Eyes song. Joel, you up to starting this now? Go for it. Open up our eyes to listen. Open up our eyes to see. Plant the seed of understanding. Grow it up like the tallest tree. Open up our ears to listen. Open up our eyes to see, plant the seed of understanding, grow it up like the tallest tree. Good job, Joel, and thanks, kids. So, welcome again. Um, A few announcements. Oh, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, touch that on your way out if you could. That'd be great. (laughs) It needed adjusting anyway. So... A few announcements about things going on for our community. If you're new with us, um, we always are looking for ways to get new people connected. We're eager to do that. Um, there is a yellow card out on that table in the foyer that you can fill out and get on our radar. Um, get on our weekly listserv that tells you about this gathering, our social listserv that sort of connects you to what's going on in our community life. Um, I'm told we're also working on a more rigorously um, planned out uh, I'll let Elizabeth Cobb talk about this before I stumble anymore. Yeah, so a lot of you know that um, for years we've been doing like search groups of folks are buying for dinner after the um, worship on Sunday nights. And we decided we wanted it to be a little bit, someone was talking about we wanted to be a little bit more organized than that. So I think what we're going to aim for is knowing ahead of time where we're going to go. <laughs> so um, so this week I'm going to kind of be the point person if anybody wants to 
um, ride with me or anything, but we're going to go to Bull City Burger and we're going to be there about 7.15. So that's the plan. And we'll um, try to have that in the weekly, I think, ahead of time. So if people want to plan to go out to here or not, um, that's the idea. Thanks, Elizabeth. And that is sort of, a, I think, an early initiative of our new hospitality team that sort of, I think, just met for the first time this past week and is thinking about all sorts of ways to build up this notion of radical hospitality that we love and embrace as a community. So, yeah, excited about what more things come out of that. Um, a couple of other, yes, yeah, I think Dave Thiessen had a quick thing about finance stuff. Yes, just uh, now to keep an eye on your mail. We are sending out contribution statements sometime this week. Uh, as far as the contributions you made to us in the 2015 calendar year. So uh, that should be coming, and if it doesn't, you know, if that doesn't arrive here in the next week or so, give me a shout, and hopefully the U.S. Postal Service didn't mess something up. Thank you, Dave. And to the U.S. Postal Service. Yes, thank you to them as well. I'm sure they'll work very hard. <laughs> Except on the snow day, right? Like, did anyone else, they canceled the mail on the snow day? Neither rain or sleet, except, yeah. Um, uh, I think there was one more. Th yeah, Molly, you want to talk about the February 14th. And um, so the minister's liturgy, we originally said last week it was going to be on February 7th. I'm not a sports person. I didn't realize the Super Bowl is that Sunday. And while we hope all of you still come to church next week, um, we've moved the minister's liturgy to February 14th. So if you've been around for a while and have never taken a part in this kind of ritual of belonging of Emmaus Way, we would love for you to join us. If you're new and are thinking this is a community in which you are invested and want to continue to invest, we hope you will join us. Reach out to Tim or I if you have any questions. Um, and it can be found, the link, and more information about it on the weekly and on our website. So. Thanks, Molly. Only had to delay it one week for the Super Bowl. So, you know, that's, that's good. Tim, I think you're going to pop up and lead us into our passing the peace and justice talk and all that. Yeah, I'm excited about doing the... Um, minister's liturgy again, uh, one of the, the, the thoughts behind the liturgy is not just the, the um, right of belonging for people that are saying this is our community, but the other thing is for us to remind ourselves of the values that we hold together, and that's been really significant for us to say that regularly with each other, so that's a, a good opportunity to do that as well. Um, I have one quick thing about next week, and then we'll pass the piece and get uh, Jim Thomas up here. Um, so um, next week we have a guest coming, uh, Pamela Wilhelms, who's a friend of mine from um, the, um, the last 20 years or so. Um, I'll have a better biography of her in, in the email, but this is what I know about Pamela. Um, she kind of went from uh, seminary to uh, consulting and I think has been involved in a couple of White House administrations I want to say a Bush and a Clinton administration, but I don't remember which ones. I'll, I'll figure that out at some point. But she does a great deal of work on a subject called the soul of the new economy. And if you've sat in Emmaus Way for the last week, month, year, or ten years, you certainly get um, a level of deconstruction 
that we talk about in terms of economic systems and how they relate to, um, to uh, our vision of Christianity um, and, and, and life together and hope together, even broader than that. And so when Pamela called me, she's teaching at Duke next week, Wednesday to Friday, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk about what would a soulful economy look like that reflects a lot of the values that we talk about, things like Jubilee that Molly talked about last week, two weeks ago, and uh, a whole range of things. So Pamela is coming next week, um, really excited about her leading the dialogue. She's very engaging. Um, and so please, th- this is also the type of thing that if you're around somebody who just wants to talk about this, invite them. It's, it'll be a really comfortable night for that. So Soul of the New Economy next week. In view of that, and I know this looks like a whiny pastor type imposing their dialogue on you, but I had, before the snow got us, I had chosen a subject area that I thought would be helpful. Ben, ben Haas has been on fire, this, uh, this not, not in a fiery material, literal sense, but the pub group readings have been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and he's really worked hard to, since he's taken that over, find readings that are fantastic. And so I would encourage you, even if you're not a pub grouper, and we have loads of fun there, but if you're not a pub grouper and you want to be on the list to get the... the the, uh, the article that we do every week. Talk to Ben and he can put you on the pub group list. But uh, we did a reading a couple weeks ago that I thought was fantastic by Wendell Berry. How many of you guys are Wendell Berry fans, readers? So I, I figured several of you would be. It's called The Two Economies. And I was going to use that as a dialogue point last week to talk about the idea of shalom and rest in the Old Testament and how it relates to Wendell Berry's kind of vision of two possible economies. It's actually the perfect subject to talk about before Pamela gets here. So here's the plan. Hopefully some of you will take us up on this. Um, The text group that meets every week to kind of talk about the text in advance, which right now is myself, uh, Ben, Molly, Ellen, Jenny Nicholson, and Mark. Um, We are going to do that dialogue tomorrow night in text group as a community. So in other words, the readings that we're going to do, we're just going to talk about it as a, as a group together. Uh, based, And there'll be a good summary of Wendell Berry's article that comes out of that. And then I think hopefully Mark, haven't seen Mark, Mark will, can post that for us. And so we'll put it up on the website. So that conversation should be available. Um, Mark, if we do it Monday night, when would, should people look for it, you think? Uh, I would say by Wednesday or something. About Wednesday-ish, you know, Wednesday, Thursday. So if you want kind of a preview and want to talk, think about Shalom and all of that, that will be on our website, and we'll send some sort of email out. So you'll kind of get that subject from last week. Great article. I encourage you to read it. So just for a moment, stand up, greet each other, offer each other the peace of Christ, uh, and uh, we will uh, get Jim going here. Just a moment. So without um, much, much other further ado on this, one of the things, if, if you're new to us, one of the things that on, on, on certain nights, every four to six weeks, what we like to do is, so you notice there's no band here tonight, and we're at Emmaus Way so ecstatic about our artists and musicians and people who are part of our community. But one of the things that we do like to do from time to time is replace that form with uh, sometimes wider discussion and other art forms. So uh, those are nights we tend to try to do something visual, which we will tonight as well. So 
that's kind of the game plan for tonight. If, if, if this was kind of odd that there was no uh, band here tonight, we usually try to keep a liturgy going together, but replace the kind of musical part of the liturgy with other things. Um, tonight, Jim Thomas is going to talk to us, and um, most of you know Jim pretty well. Jim and I have been friends since, I think, 1991, uh, and we have worked together on... Um, um, lots and lots and lots of stuff. Some of that that you guys have worked on. One of the things that Jim and Gail bring to our community um, is um, not only significant expertise in Jim's epidemiology, social work world, and and Gail's medical world, and all of those things, but um, through um, Gail was born uh, in Africa, lived there six months, I guess, but has 18 months, so uh, uh, but um, when I met Jim and Gail, one of the things that they were most interested in doing was doing the kind of medical, epidemiological, pastoral world in, in either in Africa, living there. Uh, they, they have deep connections with Kenya and a variety of other countries, uh, which never worked out in terms of like living there. Though I would suggest, how how much time do you feel like you guys have like gone to bed in in Africa as a continent? Maybe. 10, 15 years of your life, given the travel that you've done? Well, I've lived in Africa for three Oh, I've, I've forgotten that, so, yeah. And then lots of travel. Tons and tons of travel. But one of the things, that one bit of commentary is that Jim has done, as he will tell us today, a lifelong study and project of interaction between uh, the U.S. and the West and the continent of Africa, and particularly kind of from a Christian lens. And you'll hear, and you well know how badly that's been done uh, in many, 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 many ways. But this is, Jim is an expert on how do you, how do you put um, two communities together that have different histories, uh, a very shameful history of ours in terms of everything from slavery to colonialism to the Cold War. Um, Jim is an expert in that. Um, the other thing that I think is of real interest in terms of an expert in helping us reimagine a of relationships that has been done uh, done very poorly. Um, the other thing that I think is exciting for our community is that Jim approached me about a year ago, six months ago, with a, an idea. And he'll, you'll hear about Africa Rising and some things that he's done, but just some, some new vision that I think has some significant impact for Emmaus Way. And I think most of you know this, that almost everything we do from Durham Can to uh, Church World Services to uh, Marsha Owen's work has come from the community. It, there's never been like a, a pastoral script that says we should do these things. And one of the things I'm really excited about is that, that Jim is working on some vision that he's inviting us to be on the ground floor of, to think about, hopefully it will be something that some of you guys participate in and all those things. So I'm excited about not only the, the content of today, but kind of the vision and how it shapes kind of life in our community together. Uh, Africa Rising was a partnership, partnership of ours for many years until it kind of went into its kind of a dormant phase and moving into a new thing. So Jim, please come grab the mic and and uh, lead us. Thank you, Tim. So um, some of you have been here long enough to know that when I, when Gail and I first arrived here, how long has it been, four years ago or so, um, we came carrying Africa Rising as something that we were doing, and, and this community really embraced that and was a part of that. And then some years ago, I sat on this stool and pronounced it dead. And um, it was a really tough thing for me to do. 
I went into a period of mourning and then reflection, and, and I'm beginning to feel the wind under my wings again and coming with some new thoughts and wanted to run them by you, not as a done deal, but as some ideas to see what you might have to say about them and whether it's something that we as a group might pursue. Um, it, this is going to be a conversation tonight of, that in the context of the series that we're doing on justice is about... How do we interact with a continent that has a lot of poverty, has become an icon for poverty? How do we interact as people who are followers of God in a way that is respectful of God's values, respectful of those people, that isn't paternalistic? It doesn't do more harm than it does good. It's a challenge. Um, we, we may agree that, uh, as, we, as we read a couple of Sundays ago, it was in um, Jeremiah, where um, Jeremiah was talking to uh, a king about his father, the father being a better king. And he said, did, did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is, this not, is not this to know me, says the Lord. So we may agree with that. We may give a, a really strong amen to the idea that we want to address the cause of the poor and the needy and the neglected and the marginalized. But then you, when you start getting to the work of doing that, it's, it's really a challenge. And, and we might have some really um, substantial disagreements among us of how to go about that. But we're not going to surface them until we start wrestling with these things. So I wanted to bring something concrete. And it's going to be about some images around Africa and some images of the churches, the American churches' involvement in Africa. You're going to be doing most of the talking. I'm going to be asking for your, what you see, what you feel, what you think about these images. Let me just say right now that there is... No answer tonight that I'm fishing for. These are all your thoughts that are coming out. So let me start with this image behind me that is the continent of Africa, just to orient you because we're probably not all in the same place and understanding just what's there. Um, I think of Africa as, as being um, a set of ribbons that kind of mirror each other. The central ribbon is going to be the uh, rainforest, the green part there. And um, that's where I lived for two years in the center of that rainforest in the, in the Congo. And as you go north and south, from there you hit desert. Kalahari Desert in the south, Sahara Desert in the north. You go another step north and you hit a Mediterranean climate because you're just on the doorstep of Europe and you're on the Mediterranean, right? And you go all the way south to the bottom tip and that is almost exactly the same distance from the equator as that northern part. So it's also a Mediterranean climate, which means that the Europeans, when they were able to get down there, loved it. It was like home. And so you get these layers of European history on top of African history in South Africa, and you get wars, especially over things like diamonds and gold, um, so 
the, and South Africa has become very developed. You could imagine, you know, walking outside, walking around Durban, you could imagine that we're in South Africa right now. It looks like that. And so South Africa, they, they don't think of themselves as sub-Saharan Africa. When, they, when they're saying, when they're talking about Africa, they're talking about that part up there. And then there's us. So South Africa is categorically different. It has a very complex history, a lot of, lot of race issues going on. Um, some other points of interest. Ethiopia. We, we were reading a couple, of week, uh, a couple of weeks, months ago, about the Ethiopian eunuch. And Ethiopia, if you um, see that little bulge of green off to the right, headed towards Saudi Arabia, that's where Ethiopia is. And there is a river coming out of Ethiopia that we call the Blue Nile. And some think that in the Bible, when they're talking about Eden and where, where Eden was, they mention four rivers, Tigris and Euphrates are one set of them, and then Gihon is another one, G-I-H-O-N. Some think that that was the Blue Nile, um, it, which goes all the way down, or comes from, it comes from uh, Ethiopia. Joined by the White Nile, which comes from that lake, that, you, that practically the only lake you can see there, off to the right, which is Lake Victoria. One of the reasons that Africa is poor is because when, um, as societies kind of leapfrog each other, either by friendly manner or by taking each other over and stealing all the ideas and goods. And um, that was a lot harder to do in Africa because um, in Europe, a lot of that movement was sideways where the, the botany was much the same because it was the same amount of sunshine but as you go from desert to forest to desert, you can't move as a society with your stuff and do the same thing. So there's a lot of barriers to moving north and south and mixing of populations. Another factor I'll mention is that other areas, Europe, for example, had animals that could pull plows. There are none in Africa. Um, an elephant can be trained to pull a plow. It takes a long, long time. And the elephant is going to eat equally the amount that you grow in your garden. <laughs> so not much gain there. It's kind of like getting a babysitter to go to work. You know, your, your work is going to pay for the babysitter and you haven't gained anything except maybe sanity. Um, so no animals that could pull a plow. Giraffe's not going to pull a plow. Um, Cape buffalo is going to kill you. Um, zebra is just a nasty animal. They, there's nastiness in their DNA. They will bite, they will kick, they cannot be tamed like a horse. Nasty, nasty. So you can't, if you can't pull a plow, you can't get these large crops, you can't support a large population, and you can't get diversified, you can't build an army, you can't have a, a, a separate society, a part of your society that is the artists, and so there's a lot of challenges to not being able to grow big. And then the last thing I'll mention about Africa that is that it, the whole continent is a plateau. So all of the big rivers drop off of these waterfalls, which means that no foreigners can sail up the rivers into Africa to explore it and make friends or enemies. Eventually we figured out a way to do that, but um, it wasn't by sailing up, up these rivers. So... This next slide, can you go ahead? Um, the reason, this is a slide of poverty, distribution of poverty worldwide. And 
the, the darker colors that you see in Africa depict the, the greatest level of poverty. This, this is percentage of the population that lives, uh, that earns less than $2 a day. And so there is more of that in Africa. And one of the reasons is just that litany of things I explained to you about how the, the continent was, was slower to get a start into the, the present day. Other countries got a head start. And once they got a head start, then there was all kinds of other politics that played into it of keeping Africa down or, as we'll see, um, in some cases just characterizing it so that we look down on it. Um, next slide. And this is how we continually portray Africa. This is just one example. This is from a famine in Sudan. What's going on off camera that you can't see is that a plane has landed to drop off food. The mother briefly left the child. The child is not abandoned. The mother briefly left the child to get food and came back within a few more minutes. Um, and, but the photographer, in the meantime, took this photo. And... Um, you know, we could go on and on about the images that we have of this continent. Let's just take a second and do that. Um, tell me what you can remember of films, popular films about Africa. Child soldiers. Well, can you name a film that had child soldiers? Um, Blood Diamond. Blood Diamond. Okay. What's the one that's out now? Isn't there one that's out now? Beasts of No Nation. Beasts of No Nation. Another one? Yes. Um, a place where, like, out of Africa, so a place where, like, non-Africans come to find themselves. Out of Africa, yeah. So, and, and Blood Diamond is kind of like that, but the main character is South African, so it's a little bit different. But, yeah, there's a whole genre of movies of white people having adventures in Africa. Any others that come to mind? Shaka Zulu. I'm sorry? Shaka Zulu. Shaka Zulu. That's about um, wars in South Africa? Yeah, the, the British settling down. Okay. So we, we, um, what we see is wars that are about horrors in Africa, or we might, if we go the National Geographic route, we might find really fun and cute animals. Um, but very, very few. They can be found, but you have to, you have to look really hard to find um, movies where an African is the central character, it's a sympathetic character, uh, a hero or heroine. They're, they're hard to find. So we have this litany of images that, that keep Africa in a certain place in our minds. Next slide. Um, this is an image that comes from a, a story, I think, called White Man's Burden. Um, and what this is portraying is a, is a view from the 1800s of that, you look at that income disparity from a slide back, this, this reached the conclusion that it was the white man's responsibility to lift up Africa into a place that, well, you can't read it, but in the far upper left there, that big golden, looks like a big golden Buddha, um, is the, the word over that is civilization. And on the stones are things that they're walking on. Uh, on the stones are ignorance, vice, cannibalism. Um, so these are the stones that they're walking over to carry the white man, 
looks awfully American, Uncle Sam there, carrying the Africans up to civilization. So this is how the Western world has dealt with the disparity with, between the West and the continent of Africa. Now, the church has been part of this game. The church is, is not all that different from much of these images. And this is what we want to talk about. Um, we could be talking about our interaction with the African continent. It's 54 countries, so we can't talk about Africa as a country. We could be talking about it as a burden, or as we were a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at, at justice, we could be talking about it as reflecting God in how we behave towards the poor. So I don't want to uh, color our conversation too much by, by saying, by agreeing with the idea that it's a burden, but the question that we're facing tonight is how do we go about this in a way that our kids, when they look at a slide about how we behave, don't recoil in shock and embarrassment about what we've been doing. So next slide, yeah. So I want to show you a couple of images now, and and this is when you're going to start chiming in. I want to show you a couple of images of what the church, examples of how the the American church has been engaged in Africa. And for each of these slides, I want to ask a couple of questions. First is, what is it? Let's just describe and make sure we understand what's going on. And then I want to ask you, what do you think the founders thought they were doing in the name of the church or in the name of God, and then how does it make you feel? So, first of all, what is it? We've got two things going on here at the same time. On the left is Compassion International, and they are a child sponsorship program. You'll see another slide about them a little further down the road tonight. And um, so this is their appeal to get people to sponsor children. And you can see up on the top, it's an African child. And then on the right, that's World Vision. What they are portraying is a step into Africa experience. That they, It was a, a setup that they carried around to different conferences. And you could walk through the rooms of a hut, and you would carry a child's name. And in each of the rooms in different places, you would read something about that child. And uh, the text that you probably can't read is, um, Can You Survive the Journey of a Child? That's under Step Into Africa. So what do you think those who created these were thinking? In your most gracious thoughts. (laughs) Trying to be helpful. Trying to be helpful. Okay. Children are a lot more sympathetic than adults. (laughs) So trying to, now you're getting a little bit ahead of me. So, <laughs> uh, so um, trying to help children. Okay. To try to make it easy for Americans to help children. Like, make it easy. Just Okay. So no barriers, just... A little experience. Click and... Okay. So, um, so not many Americans can go. So we'll bring it to you, and we'll give you a, a, a little bit of a touch of an experience, more than just a pamphlet. You can walk through it, okay? 
Yes. I think they want like a one-on-one connection. Like you as an individual are helping this person as an individual or yeah. experiencing what that individual Okay. Okay. Um, so now, how does it make you feel? Guilty. Guilty? Why? Um, because I have all these riches and there's all these people on this other continent who, you know, just a quarter a day or just a dollar a day could eat, you know, or, or whatever. And just, you know... You're feeling guilty, but I'm thinking of a joke, Mimi. There, there's, a, <laughs> there's a Saturday Night Live skit about um, a village, and this guy's walking around talking about, for 25 cents a day, you can't do such and such. And then there, I see some head, heads nodding, so people know this. And then there's this African over here who is saying, 25 cents a day, why don't you ask him for two bucks? I mean, 25 cents, he should be more. And <laughs> anyway, if I remember, I'll send that around. Anybody else have thoughts? What about the children? What, so say more about what you were thinking about the children. Um, children are responsible for their own situations, whereas like, we might... Some people in the West might look at adults in poverty and think, well, you know, maybe they've bad decisions or whatever, but children obviously not, couldn't have. So, yeah. so that, that, that gives up. That gives it in, I think, to make, make the decision Okay. Like, I dare you to turn down a child. Yeah. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yes, Christine. Oh. I was just going to say, when I was a kid, um, I had a friend whose parents sponsored a child. And I actually asked the parents one time, I said, well, what about that kid's brothers and sisters and their friends? Like, I couldn't figure out how it was fair that this one kid got to go to school and have clothes, but all the other people around him or her didn't. I just, it didn't make sense to me. Well, it's like, well, I didn't, yeah. that good? <laughs> yeah, and might it, might it make that person a pariah within their own family because they get all the good stuff? Well, for that reason, a lot of these organizations, Compassion International, I think, included, they, on the website, it looks like you're selecting a child. But when you read the fine print, it's money going to a program that is for a lot of children in the community. So it's usually more village or community-centered, which makes me feel good on one side, but on the other side, I feel like I just got a switcheroo. Yeah. You know? um, and uh, let me just say that Gail and I, have, we supported a child for several years. We got him through high school in Kenya. Um, and I still have mixed feelings. I have mixed feelings about it. Okay, let's go on then. Oh, is there one more? I yes. I just going to say that um, they, I can't see partially because my eyes are so bad, so I can't really see the world vision little picture very well, except they're like sepia and like old and like uh-huh. yeah. so past and kind of edgy. Uh-huh. Um, and yo, I'm implicated in this. I'm a professional anthropologist, so we do this. But <laughs> in, the, in the Compassion International, those, that, those children don't look happy. Mm. They look like they don't quite look like that um, super problematic photograph that you showed a few slides ago, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but they don't like. I don't see like I don't see kids like hitting each other's siblings and like you know doing what you know what kids do like mm-hmm. scraping their knees and pulling each other's hair and then laughing and just, like the kid stuff. Like I see like. Oh, 
have like really beautiful eyes. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned problematic photos. Let's let's move on to the next one. Um, so this one says, if, I don't know if you all can read that in the back. Rick Warren has a sweeping plan to defeat poverty. So um, is it Rick, right who Rick Warren is? I'm not Rick, Rick Warren is a pastor of a megachurch in is it San Diego, is it uh, south farther north in California, so, Southern California. Um, and uh, Purpose so, Driven Life. Yeah, he wrote that book, The Purpose Driven Life. So um, he, his wife um, took on AIDS. She didn't get AIDS. <laughs> she took on AIDS to, to combat AIDS. And so they began spending more time in Africa, and they developed a plan for addressing poverty throughout the poor areas of the world. It involved uh, filling containers, you know, like the big containers that go on ships, and turning them into clinics and putting them in communities so that communities had clinics. Um, so that's the, the extent of what I know. So let's do this exercise of what do you think they would say if they were in the room about what they were doing and how this is in the interest of God's kingdom? Was this before or after their son died? Because I know that he sort of recanted a lot of the purpose-driven life after his son. Recanted the purpose-driven life? How long ago did his son die? Three, this was before then. Okay. Yeah. So what would they say if, you know, about what they're doing? I think they'd say they're being helpful. I mean, that they're um, using their own means to, you know, give people better health care. Okay. And that's good. They're thinking big. They're a big church. We're going to think big. We can't think big because we're a big church. Let's do something big. I just can't get over it. I think that they're photoshopped in. Like, I know that they are. Like, I really... They're pretty white, aren't they? <laughs> like, I really think, like, they are photoshopped in. Um... So let's move on to how we feel, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> tell, me, tell me how that makes you feel. Um, I don't, like, kind of going on with the big church, we're doing this big thing, and look at us, we're these big, great white people coming in to save these people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just... Does it remind you a little bit of that earlier slide of White Man's Burden? Yeah, it does. Um, mm -hmm. well, the fact that they, the staging, we were talking about this, the staging of this photo is either like incredibly intentional or the most embarrassing act ever that you've got the centrality of them and the photoshop thing is that they're 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 larger than the children and raised up so there's a almost an iconic white savior uh approach to this as well as and you would think you know traditionally in america the mega church in certain areas especially <coughs> california is notoriously uh upper middle class a certain version of it is upper middle class it's white um, this could have spoken to people's greatest fears, you know, white people surrounded by dark bodies and we're courageous enough to do it. I mean, so it has this opportunity to kind of be 
very white savior-ish, um, mm-hmm. benevolent, as well as as you would see in lots of candidates that are running for office now, the, the provoking a deep racial fear and maybe setting themselves up as heroic in face of that fear. So there's all kinds of possibilities. Yeah. And I'd be desperate. I would be really curious of whoever framed that and said, this is it, what they were thinking. I have no idea. Yes, Chelsea? I just find the text really problematic yeah. because um, they have this plan to address AIDS, but somehow that's the same as defeating poverty. Um, I think that that is a big simplification of the reality of people who live in poverty, that even solving that one problem could change their life that dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, when you're doing things big, you often have to simplify. And it's also... Uh, Weird to me that maybe it's just the lighting here, but we gotta make Rick Warren's name white in the text as well. <laughs> just in case you miss the, the white, white. He's the whitest thing in that photo. SK. I'm just sort of struck by the staging of the photo. Like, they could have been facing each other kind of in relationship. Mm. They're just like looking out kind of, they don't know, they don't have to know anything about the people mm. around them, but they're in a picture together. But I guess it's just reinforcing this. It's almost like they're thinking about us more than they are the kids around them. Yes. Because they're making eye contact Because they've got the us. plan. They have the plan. Yeah. We've got the plan. But we don't have to be in a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that the foundation of what they are and what they've worked towards providing that, that ability and platform to provide that care, especially if they have a sustainable plan for those uh, dropped-in kids. They're transmitting the wealth that they have throughout their community and effectively being kind of the first warning shots across the bow where things have been neglected, whether from states and everything. They are the leaders in that stuff. So there, there is the glass-half-full perspective that we were trying to get at earlier on of what they would say they are doing. Thank you, Jordan. I think it's also interesting that Rick Warren has the plan, and it's not like Rick Warren asked the people there what they needed, mm. and then okay. partnered with them to do it. It's like he knows what's best. And I don't know if this was already mentioned, but the fact that there are two adults in a sea of children also has like a hierarchical mm-hmm. sort of suggestion to it. Let's take one more. I thought I saw one more hand. Yes, Brian. Um, well, I've talked to several people. I haven't been to Africa myself, but... Um, this impression of the richness of relationships and, I mean, I've heard a lot of mixed things like terrible poverty, but I guess I just want to point out that these people don't look poor. Um, I mean, they may be financially poor, but I've heard like missionaries, like particularly this one missionary, Patty Baker, who talks about the, the, the riches of relationship and stuff that we lack in the West. And how spiritually poor we are over here, surrounded by everything that we could possibly want or need. And how much we have to learn from um, people in that. Right, so when, when you see this black-white, <clears throat> the subtext is poor-rich. And so we just kind of put that, our minds do the poverty thing, even if they weren't poor. Our minds do that for us. I'm... Um, I just saw my watch here, and I, I have to fast forward for a little while, and then we'll slow down again. So um, I, you've thought you're uncomfortable now. 
Wait until you see this next one. <laughs> All right, so now we're in Ghana. And this is a fort where um, Africans were collected and then put on ships to go to America. So they were kept in the basements. If you see these uh, sort of rounded um, doors, those lead down. And uh, there are some places where they are kept in these large stone rooms where they could see over just over the top of that out into this courtyard. That building that you're looking at in the center is a church. This is where the Portuguese worshipped while the slaves were looking at them through these little portholes. When I saw this, I, ju- I was just beside myself. To, what kind of gymnastics do you have to do in your head to be attending church while you're gathering slaves? And so the Portuguese were superseded by the Dutch, Dutch Reformed. The Dutch left that church, but they created another one upstairs <laughs> so they could look down on everything. Um, so they continued to have a church in this slave fort. Um, <clears throat> So can you go to the black slide now? And um, the question I think we need to ask here is, have we screwed up so consistently that we should just stay away, that we should just not touch? I want to I ask you that question. What are your thoughts on that? Should we just, can we just say, okay, we screwed up. Evidently, we're incapable. We're just not going to show up. I don't know. Have they given clinics? Have they empowered the people? Have they improved health? As we're I haven't heard. I haven't heard of anything like that. I can tell you that I work in a lot of African countries, and not once have I ever heard it mentioned. Christine. Well, so if we're like, so I, I, I think that. <laughs> We short-circuited her. <laughs> and, okay. and I think we have, if, if other people are like me, I'm having like this mixed reaction of like, not, like oftentimes we see things like this and we're like, I just don't know what to do, right? And if we know that, we know that that, that, that Rick Warren photograph looks like big and bad, even, whatever. But we're like, I, I don't know what to do. So I'm trying to think of like, what what's deeper underneath even the question that you asked of let's just stop. Um, it'd be really interesting if we could stop absolutely using any resources whatsoever that come from Africa, but we're already involved. Um, because if, since I have my cell phone with me, and this is clearly, clearly has rare earth metals that are financing the war in DRC, if we want to say, oh, we should stop, we should not give anything, but we still participate in this economic transaction, we're still involved. So I think one of the first things to do is, uh, is, is to realize it's really hard to say crap, we've really messed up, we have to stop. Um, I, I think I hear that reaction, um, but I don't even know if we realize how deep we are already to be able to just be like that abhorrent church thing, we have to stop. So I, I, don't, I, I don't have, it's not neat, but those are the things that I'm thinking. None of this tonight's going to be neat. There, there aren't any neat answers. Other feelings. 
structural or statecraft. I mean, we're not the ones investing the trillion dollars in infrastructure development. China is. Mm-hmm. China's developing the inroad to be the human uh, mm-hmm. human factor of the next 50 to 100 years in Africa. So do we uh, turn our times to you know our own uh, elected officials to say this should be our interest, this is the way in which you should fight for a humane wage on a China standard, forget our standard and try to work towards that way? And then, of course, we should be there. I mean, for lack of a better term, that we are able to. We are able to, if you do it wise, it's the cradle of the information age. Samuel Morris picked up how you do Morse code from listening to the drums to the African villages. You know, you just you, you figure out how to serve. Don't, you just, of course we should be there. Okay. Of course you should. Okay. Anybody, any dissenting views? Brian. Um, so I feel like there's another element going on, which is like oil companies Javiers and diamond companies and stuff that are Western companies that rip apart the economies and the. Um, I mean, Europe and the West have been influencing Africa from 500 years ago. So, what if we were to own our in, the, the influence that we have and fight against destructive Western influences to allow the brilliant minds? that are in the universities in these places to solve African problems on their own. What if we were to fight against the IMF and the World Bank and neoliberal economic policies and stuff that open up their countries to dumping our agricultural products on their economies and all this different stuff that we do? What if we were to take the fight to the home front and confront that? So I'm, I'm hearing a lot of... I won't say a lot, two. <laughs> I'm hearing two thoughts... Jordan's and yours, Brian, about how do we approach justice. This, this is where we started tonight, was, was talking about, okay, we'll agree that we want to be engaged in that fight, but how? And um, so we, we've got a couple of ideas of, of what we might do. There will probably be others if we took a little bit more time, but I haven't heard anybody say, let's back away, let's not do anything. Um, we can't not be engaged. So if, with, with that tentative idea, I'm going to keep on going and talk about some ways that I've tried to be engaged and ways that our community can be engaged. To get there, I'm going to have to pass through a couple of slides that I'm not going to talk about. So um, can you keep, just go through slavery and <laughs> keep on going? That's Durham, by the way. That's a Durham bus station. Hold it right there. Uh, this is just, um, this is the Jim Crow South. Um, Andrew, I was wishing Andrew would be in the room tonight. Um, Andrew told me that the inspiration for apartheid came from the Jim Crow South. Apartheid began in, in 1948. Uh, Jim Crow South began right after the Civil War. Um, and so uh, we, are, we are the teachers of, of um, some of the injustices in, in Africa. And then just as an aside, not related to what we're talking about at all, I can't let you miss the, the story on the wall, Hitler's love life revealed. <laughs> so just push that out of your mind and we'll move on. So next slide. And then this was just a reminder, um, if, if there's income disparity and we say that the church wants to be about caring for the poor, how do we say, okay, we're not going to be about that poverty? 
All right, keep going. One more. So um, this is one of just a few slides that I'm going to show you that relates to Africa Rising. That was an attempt to do what you all have been kind of wrestling with in your heads of how do you be engaged in a way that's responsible. One of the things that really disturbed me is just the role of money in all relationships between Americans and Africans. Whenever I would show up at a site, I would see like the cartoons, little dollar signs in the eyeballs of, here comes a white man, he's bringing money. And oftentimes, um, I would be greeted with a dance, like this one here. And I love the dances. I love, I mean, they're, they're really fun, they're really cute. I have mixed feelings, you know, so I'm loving this, this um, cultural event, and, at the, and they're very gracious, very hospitable. I don't want to take that away from them. But at the same time, I'm thinking, are they doing this because they think that I'm coming with money, that I'm going to support them? This would happen time and time again. So I wanted to find something that would take money out of the center of what we were doing. Next slide. So what we did was identify a number of organizations throughout East Africa that were doing work that we thought was really good. These are African-founded, African-run organizations. And we approached them and said, we want to network you with these others so that you can learn from and teach each other. We will facilitate those interactions, but we are not going to be fundraising for you. We're not, don't expect us to come with money for you. Opportunities may arise because of your interactions with us, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to network you. So one of the groups that we worked with, you need to go back one. Um, one of the groups that we worked with um, is, is south of Nairobi in Kalisa Village. For those of you who know Kenya, uh, this is near Machakos. And um, they were not getting water from uh, Mount Kenya as, as often as they used to. Things were drying up. The glaciers on Mount Kenya are drying up. So their village was drying up. They were looking for a way to get water. They greatly shortening this story. They built a subsurface dam. So what you're looking at here is a dam. You could step right over that. It's maybe 12 inches high. When, when a, a flood comes, the water runs right over the top of that dam and just continues on down. But the water also soaks into that sand. So when the torrent is over, all of that water that is in the sand beneath is captured by this dam that goes down to the bedrock. So now you go to the next slide. And if you just dig by hand, you can get down to water. So this is a little upstream of the dam, and here's a woman who has, is getting her water. Um, this was a major find for this village. They managed, with the excess water, they managed to start a nursery, and with the nursery, they managed to um, sell more than they needed and bring an income into the village. But this next slide is another of the organizations in Africa Rising. They're called African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries, which I think has the unfortunate acronym of ALARM. <laughs> and <laughs> and they, um, they work with pastors to 
help them know how to bring about reconciliation and bring down some of the temperature around the heated temperature around tribal divisions. So Alarm was working with a Maasai tribe. The people who had built this dam were a Kamba tribe. Now the Kambas and the Maasais are traditional enemies. The Kambas typically won because they had bows and arrows and the Maasais had spears. This, but in this example, these traditional enemies are coming together because the Kamba have invited the Maasai to their community to show them how to do one of these dams in their community. So that's just one example of what Africa Rising was doing. So why did we stop it? <clears throat> we stopped it because we found this fundraising black hole. We weren't, because we were bringing together organizations, not all of which were Christian, we were seen as not Christian enough for the churches. Because we had lots of organizations that were Christian, we were too Christian for the secular people. Because we were working in Africa, American foundations had no interest. Because we were based in America, African foundations had no interest. So I could go on with, with the challenges that we faced, but what it ended up with was that uh, Gail and I were carrying the, the, the lion's share of, of um, funding this. There were others who were donating, and some of you in this room, that kept it going for quite a while, eight years. Um, most of the money went to the salary of a woman in Kenya that you'll meet in a couple of minutes. And um, I, we, we reached this point where we felt like we had a, a hobby NGO. This was like our NGO as a hobby that, that you know, we could sort of feel good about what we were doing, but it wasn't really going anywhere, and it wasn't sustainable, it wasn't replicable. And we decided just to pull back and rethink. So that's where we are right now in rethinking. And I, I mentioned that at the beginning, that I was rethinking how we might do something in this community. So I've come around to, to thinking about the strengths of this community and what, what we could bring to this question of how do you engage with a continent that you are historically linked to and even in the contemporary way linked to. And there are all these barriers to overcome. How do you do that well? Well, it gets back to some of what we were wrestling with as we were going through these slides and looking at these photos of, you know, how does this make you feel? What, what, what are the assets? What are the liabilities of this model? One of the things that, that the, the, the typical approach that churches and church organizations take is that they sort of hammer out a theology, and then they say, okay, so because of this, we're going to do these activities. We're going to take care of orphans. I haven't seen anybody yet who has taken the flip side of that and, and looked at something that's on the ground and asks the question, what does this say about the nature of the kingdom of God? In, in wrestling with that question, it gets close to how we as a community think in looking for the community of God, looking for what God is doing and how we can participate in that. So it, it exercises our ability to see what God is doing, and to see what something says about that kingdom. So next slide. So I'm going to skip. This is, um, 
another child support. Because of time, I'm going to skip a few. So next one. So we're going to, let's wrestle with this one. This is Samaritan's Purse. We're going, to tr- we're going to take this for a test drive, this idea of looking at something and seeing where do we see the kingdom of God or what does it say about the kingdom of God. This is Samaritan's Purse. They have every Christmas this thing called Operation Christmas Child where you take a shoebox, next slide, and you are to fill it with gifts and then it gets sent off you, you take it to a distribution point, and it gets sent off to you don't know where. So there are communities in, let's just say, rural Uganda that are going to receive a truckload of these shoeboxes with stuff in them, wishing you a Merry Christmas. What does something like this say to you about the kingdom of God? You're smiling, and you're not going to say anything, are you? <laughs> now you're laughing. Can you share? No? Okay. What does it say? Yes, Elizabeth. I haven't quite developed this thought, so bear with me. But I just feel like it, I mean, it just seems more consistent. I mean, it feels like, I mean, especially with this picture, this is, this is striking me. It's kind of like, this is what we have in America. Like, here's a little picture of this for you. Like, that's what it feels like. Um, and I don't mean that as an insult to anyone. So that I set off plenty of shoeboxes personally. But I just like, especially with this, this white cabbage patch kind of doll, and it just feels very. Okay. Somehow a reflection of us, not, not needs. Another thought? Yeah, I, I was having similar thoughts about the white doll in particular. Um, but it, it's like. It gives the impression that like stuff like our consumer goods here are better than what could be bought in Africa, and also it, it privileges. Um, this, this is something that, like even even like um, food pantries here will say we'd rather have your money than your random canned goods because for the dollar fifty you spend on a can of soup we can buy ten cans of soup and. Something like this really privileges the, per, like it, it, it privileges the personal, the personal connection that the American wants over um, good stewardship of resources. So as far as like buying people in bulk or whatever. So between your two comments, perhaps I'm reading between the lines, but I'm, or maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'm hearing the word impersonal. That so the kingdom of God is impersonal. There's no, you have no idea who this goes to. Other thoughts that I can put in your minds? I want to piggyback off of what you said, because I thought you put it really, really well. um, So, okay, let me try to, you said, uh, I don't care. It was just, there's something here that, like, privileges the relationship or the kind of connection we want. And I think the other side of that is it doesn't actually confront us with the relationship that we need. And I think that the pictures on slavery and Jim Crow actually are part of what we need, um, which is to realize that actually there's an incredible amount of poverty here in the U.S. too, and there's an incredible amount of racial injustice. And it's really hard to be like, oh, what should we do in Africa? Without actually also first saying, actually, also, what's going on here? And we must we must respond here as well. Yeah. Um, and And... So this lets us 
assuage our negative feelings in terms of race without actually having to repent, to use classic language, right? Um, also, what happens here is, so the, the soccer ball is totally going to be useful, but everything else is just going to be resold. It's cool, it's cool. I like it. It'll circulate money in local markets, but that's what's going to happen. Those aren't going to be gifts to the kids. So I, you know, just pragmatic. It's fine. I mean, it's a, it's a form of commerce. Next one. So we're, we're moving on. Um, not, I didn't mean that as a slide to anybody. I'm sorry. Um, I'm just paying attention on my clock. Um, this is more of the traditional uh, missionary working in Africa. When I lived in the Congo, there were people who were doing this at the place that I was staying. This is a, um, probably an American woman who is teaching children. She is the school for those children. What does this say to you about God's kingdom? Let me just put out a warning that we, I, I don't want us to get in the habit of thinking negative all the time. There, there are some positive things in here. Enlightening. In, what about enlightening? That God's kingdom is? You know, in, in your life, we see our life. So the structure of thought, structure of you know, just how to learn and understand beyond the spoken word. Okay. You know, so in a way, in the pejorative sense of bringing to civilization, but bringing a sense of another way to communicate civilization. And, yeah. And, yeah. Well, Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. So I think it reflects his care for kids. Okay. This is a lot more personal than the last example that we had. This woman is going to be living with these children. There's an element of service here. Like there's there's someone physically present, but there's also since I mean I know how I felt about missionaries in our church growing up is when they came we sort of like yeah we'll support you and sort of wipe our brow but there's someone out there doing yeah more. yeah yeah so it it, it hmm. thank it's good that it's good that you guys are out there doing that I'm not sure I want to be in the it's sort of a delegation yeah. element yeah let's go to the next slide. This is the last. No, keep going. That's microcredit, but we're going to go here. Um, this sign says, resolve conflicts early. This is t- from a sign in the lawn of a school where 139 girls were taken captive by the Lord's Resistance Army in northern Uganda. The, <clears throat> the, the Catholic nun, Italian Catholic nun, who was um, over this school, chased after the LRA, and was able to negotiate the freedom of 109 of those girls. I can't imagine the agony of having to leave 30, but she was able to negotiate back 109. Eventually, the the other 30 came back after some time with children. It's a horrific story. But this school, let's just think about this school. They were transformed by that experience. And there are these signs all over the grounds of this school. One of them says, women are strong leaders. This one, resolve conflicts early. What do these say to you? What does that story say to you about the kingdom of God? That we have stuff to learn from them as well. Yeah, we have stuff to learn from them as well. That we don't have, you know, the corner on the market of what the kingdom of God looks like. Yeah. 
maybe like acknowledging that in our imperfect sinful selves um, like back to the shoebox thing like we're trying our best to do what we think someone else could find helpful right so like at my school um, we fill shoe boxes and give them away and it's like you look at the one side of it and you're like oh they gave a little white doll and it's like okay my student was in the store and she likes dolls so she picked out a doll that she thought someone else would enjoy yeah you know it's not the, you know it's not about the color of the skin necessarily of the doll but the fact that I love this toy I hope she loves this toy and like it's like an imperfect gift. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, Which mean, is, people are trying, and they try their best, and then they get criticized, and it's sad. Yeah. Which is not to say we shouldn't try to understand if there are better ways. Right. Yeah. Um, go a couple more slides to there. This is Mary Muhara, who I mentioned to you earlier. Mary, um, since leaving Africa Rising, since we closed down, went back to her family farm in rural Kenya, and um, their mother died shortly thereafter. When her mother was a school teacher for years and years and years, and when uh, at her funeral, thousands upon thousands of people came. One of them in a helicopter. And um, they were very much impressed by the impact that she had had on their community. They decided that they were going to fulfill one of her dreams, which is to turn their farm into a resource for the whole community. So they made it into a macadamia nut, I always want to say macadamia mutt, factory, um, so that farmers around them could grow, have a crop that they could sell, and then the factory processes and exports them. The profits, some of the profits that her family makes, they reinvest in the schools. So this is an example of one of the organizations that has caught my eye that would potentially be the kind of organization that we could be in a relationship with that would take, possibly take money off the center table so that they're not just looking to us longingly for money. It's not to say that we couldn't invest in them in other ways. But I'm, I'm just toying with some ideas of what might be if we were to, to, to partner with Mary. Next slide. And this is another example. This is Josephine Kiza. She has turned her farm into a training center for intensive organic farming. Her motto is, feed the dirt so it will feed you. And she has had a transformative impact across her region of Uganda that have enabled people to do better farming in ways that are organic. Um, It's it's a Catholic organization, so it's, it's a church effort there. And then the last slide here. Um, So I... I just wanted to mention to you that uh, there are some organizations that we might consider, and I also wanted to mention that this um, sorting through of what something says about the kingdom of God is something that I'm headed towards doing on the web. And I, I will likely be approaching some of you for ideas of things that could be written about and maybe even to write some things. 
so that as a community we can be continuing to consider what these things say about the kingdom of God. This slide here is taken from uh, a rural Uganda village, a church that I was in, where they took the offering in a Frisbee. And um, what came back was money and eggs. And I just thought that was so beautiful, that this is really a picture of the imperfect gifts that we have to give. We, we may not have the right thing. It may be fragile, um, but it is um, our good effort to be engaged in some positive way. So I, I, I want to leave us with that thought, with that image of um, these imperfect gifts and how we might struggle to find them. And I'm going to close right there. Does, ben, do you want to take over the mic from me? Oh, is it Molly? Yeah. Thank you so much, Jim. Um, I know you have given me lots to ponder and think about, um, especially as a white girl in college who went and lived in a township for six months for Jesus, but also because I wanted to go live in a township in South Africa for six months. It's my confession as we enter into a time of confession and absolution. Um, Here now, these two poems, one as our confession and one as the absolution. The first um, is written by a South African Afrikaans poet, and she is known in many circles as kind of the foremost Afrikaans poet. Um, She died in 2005 in South Africa. Born, raised, lived there. Here now these words. Somewhere in Eden, after all this time, does there still stand abandoned like a ruined city, gates sealed with grisly nails, the luckless garden? Is sultry day still followed there by sultry dusk, sultry night, where on the branches, sallow and purple, the fruit hangs rotting? Is there still underground, spreading like lace among the rocks, a network and unexploited loads, onyx and gold? Through the lush greenery, their wash echoing afar, do there still flow the four glassy streams of which no mortal drinks? Somewhere in Eden, after all this time, Does there still stand, like a city in ruins, forsaken, doomed to slow decay, the failed garden? And here now, the absolution, written by Lucille Clifton, um, who is poet laureate at University of Maryland, um, African-American poet who, in 1969, I believe was the first... African-American female poet um, to be recognized by the New York Times for her work. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I have no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me. 
and has failed. So I want to invite us to the table tonight, our open table, which is the practice of Emmaus Way. Um, a couple of things came to mind um, that I think relate to the table and relate to our lives and relate to our hopes. Uh, Jim, the photo that you showed of, um, what was the sign that said, resolve conflicts early? early. Um, the thing that came to mind for me is maybe one of the greatest struggles that we have um, in our culture um, is that we tend to think of the kingdom of God or God's work in the world as an abstraction, something that's an idea, something that's happening somewhere. Um, and as an abstraction, it, it doesn't impact lives. It doesn't change things. And as Christine was saying as well, it, it doesn't convict us. If it's something that's happening out there, then I don't have to look at... Uh, my own very deep implications in a culture that's based on whiteness, a religion that provided um, the logic of slavery as well as the logic of hope and salvation. I, I, I don't have to get into that mess. Uh, but as I looked at that photo, this idea of conflict and fear is not an abstraction. It's, it's, a, it's a part of a very real story that those signs reflect. And then I think about ourselves, and I think, you know, we could make some signs, too. Um, and, and, and if we were very honest, those things would make very real aspects of our own lives that we tend to think maybe are distant from God's kingdom or God's work. And so that's one of the things that came to mind in this whole conversation is that, and one of the things I, I've loved about Jim and Gail for 25 years is they are not people that are committed to... Um, uh, thought and abstraction without deep risk-taking action connected to that. And, and as the images we saw, there's really nothing that you can do about poverty, about uh, our own struggles uh, without risk, without failure, without getting it wrong. Uh, and I think that was very much Jim's intention with a lot of those photos is for us to realize that there's no pure model, that uh, many of these have wonderful ideas as well as egregious implications. And, and, and so one of the things that I think for us that's a lesson that we try to learn uh, as well is that the, the, the God's work and the kingdom and community and life for that work is not an abstraction. And for us, the table is so powerful because it's material, it's real. Um, we, we are gathering something that gives life to us, uh, sustenance, food and drink. We're doing it together. We're giving it to each other together so that the idea that in some way your life doesn't intersect with mine, your life doesn't matter to me, you, I don't matter to you, those are things that we can't really sustain as thought as we serve each other, as we work to, uh, with each other, as we confess to each other, as we dream and scheme together. And so that's one aspect of the table that we do every week, a material mundane practice that reminds us that, that this is indeed um, a very non-abstract reality, the hope that we carry. So that, I think that's one of the things that I, that I took from that is that you weren't hoping that we could have an intellectual conversation about poverty and 
really complex histories, but that we need to do something. And tonight, one of the things we'll do is we will serve each other. Uh, the other thing that I think, and this strikes to the Wendell Barrel, very story that we read last week, is the issue of hope. There is a sense that the kingdom has an implication of hope that many of us, including me, maybe especially me, scream and say, where is that hope? How does that hope play and live? And I think one of the things that I've always suspected and found true is that I find more of a a hold and attraction on hope when I get close to need and get close to my weakness and get close to my pain and get close to brokenness rather than staying safely at a distance. And so tonight we celebrate the hope, the hope that, uh, that God is deeply present in this world and the gospel matters and the kingdom matters. Um, and we share uh, the food and the wine, the bread, the drink with each other, not just as an expression of our lives together, but an expression of hope. So I invite you now to the table to uh, do our usual practice, uh, break bread and uh, pour wine or juice for each other. Say uh, this is the the body and bread, uh, the body or the blood that was broken or shed for you and greet each other, connect with each other. And in this moment, uh, live without the hope of abstraction and live with the sense that we're indeed uh, people serving and thinking together. And Jim, I really look forward to, uh, I appreciate you inviting us into this next step that Africa Rising uh, led you to uh, uh, as a community to think aloud on that. So please join us for the table and uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to be with each of you this evening.